This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. New taxes, big but isolated layoffs, Me Too fallout a bullish economic outlook that keeps on ticking a decade after the Great Recession. 2019 had a little bit of everything when it comes to Oregon business stories. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with The Oregonian. Up next, a conversation with Mike Rogaway, The Oregonian's business and technology reporter. We talked about the new business tax approved by the legislature, why Oregonians remain so optimistic about the economy, and a both rough and profitable year for Nike and Intel for different reasons. A snapshot of the state's business landscape this year with a look ahead to 2020 is coming up next. Mike, thanks for taking the time to come in and talk about our economy this year and kind of where we're headed next year. Very glad to do it, Andrew. You know, Oregonians are fairly confident in our economy right now, despite this lengthy, um, you know, bull economy that we've been in. Uh, Are they right to be? Well, economists have a uh, saying that economic expansions don't die of old age, that there has to be some kind of eternal external shock mm-hmm. to the system or, or a long degrading of economic fundamentals. Uh, we haven't had that. We can talk more about that in a minute. The, the bottom line is that I think Oregonians are right to be optimistic. Oregon Business and Industry, that's the, the business community's lobby, did a, a poll in October, they've just released the results that show that Oregonians, about half of Oregonians, say that they're better off now than they were a year ago, but close to 60% say they expect to be better off a year from now than they are today. So that means that, that people think that the economic expansion is actually getting better for them personally, even though we see in economic barometers like job growth, mm-hmm. um, home prices, things like that, a notable cooling. But I think what Oregonians are feeling personally is probably the right thing. We'd probably be foolish to second-guess them. We talked about ex- economic expansions not dying of old age. Right. We, we haven't had a big degrading of economic fundamentals, and there's no big economic shock apparent on the horizon. We have had an economic shock over the last 18 months or so, the trade war with China. Right. And the that, uh, Trump administration has, has been you know, very active in that regard. Right. And that has slowed manufacturing across the country and in Oregon. We can we have something like a manufacturing recession going on right now. But its impacts are fairly limited. The trade war is is being felt most acutely, I think, in sectors of the forest products and agriculture industry and among small, low-margin manufacturers. Uh, so if you are in wood products and you're in Astoria, if you're growing hazelnuts in the Willamette Valley, Mm -hmm. you're probably feeling it. But for the average Oregonian, I think things continue to get better and modestly better. So the big forest uh, 
providers like uh, Roseburg Forest Products, um, you know, the giant that's around the country uh, yeah. and based in Douglas County um, or Lane County, actually. Now, they're not feeling it, but maybe the, the timber producers on the coast who rely on timber from the state forests. Um, to the you know, extent they're, they're and struggling. I, and, I, and forgive me, I, I'm not extremely knowledgeable about the forest products economy, but where I have seen it is there is evidence of it being felt in the export market. Mm -hmm. And so if your end market is China, you may be feeling that. Uh, and there are signs of that in, in the economic data. In general, though, outside those sectors, you know, the broad economy continues to get better and better and, and better just really slowly right now. And in some ways, that's healthier. We can see the home price uh, growth has gotten under control, which is better if you're looking to buy a house. Rents aren't rising fast if at all right now. So it's making it easier to find housing. And we live in a golden age of, of Oregon economists right now. And Josh Lehner, Christian Kaler, and others mm -hmm. through their research, they both work for the state, have found that while economic disparities persist, and in some cases are getting wider, all parts of the state are experiencing job growth right now. And Oregon incomes are growing as fast, really, as they have been in in a very long time. So it's not just us here in the Portland metro area. It's uh, down in uh, Eugene, Springfield, and, and the uh, Central Oregon is still doing well. Yeah, and, and Southern area. Oregon, places that were slow to come back from the Great Recession now are coming back, and coming back rather rapidly, faster than the metro area. We've had our growth in Portland now, and outlying parts of the state are, are doing better now. What about, you know, here in Oregon, obviously we have some some big employers like, uh, you know, Nike and Intel and uh, I guess in the health sector, Providence or something comes to mind. Um, what's the sa status of those big employers? Well, it's it's a little complicated. It we'll take the biggest corporate employers, uh, Nike and Intel. They've both had some difficult years for very different reasons. Nike has been caught up in a, a series of, of scandals over their treatment of women, uh, over doping, mm -hmm. they're changing CEOs, and yet their business fundamentals look pretty strong. Uh, from an Oregon perspective, they're completing their huge campus expansion that sort of cements their role here for a very long time. And they're one of their top competitors, Adidas, with its North Portland. Uh, yeah, Adidas uh, is also American expanding. Yeah. yeah, yeah, much to the neighbor's consternation uh, <laughs> in North Portland. But yes, uh, you know, it does appear that those markets as is often true with retail consumer products during a healthy economy, are doing well. Intel is our largest corporate employer. They've had a, a very difficult year in some ways. They've made a series of missteps around their next generation of microprocessor technology, the 10 nanometer technology. That is several years behind schedule now, but it's just finally starting to roll out of its factories in Hillsboro and soon will be coming out of its, its fab they call it a, a fat chip factory, a fab right. in Israel. So they're finally getting on that. Unfortunately, they it's been such a difficult transition. They have some real shortages in their current 14 nanometer generation that PC manufacturers in particular are, fall, are feeling this year. That's been bad. It's, it's artificially constrained Intel sales. But from Oregon's perspective, mm -hmm. Intel is addressing its manufacturing problems, long-term technology challenges by building a new, more advanced factory in Hillsboro. So that's employing, you know, thousands of people while they build it. It'll cost them several billion dollars. And then there will be something like 1,700 new employees there wow. when it's done in a few years. So, you know, it's sort of, in both cases, Nike and Intel, it's cemented their, their long-term role here. 
And um, I know you've reported on Intel for years, and uh, their you know D1X expansion was uh, was that a multi-billion dollar expansion? Yeah, ultimately? yeah. And, and so- what what's happening now is the third phase of that. That that started back in 2010, 2011, when our construction industry was really at its lowest point in many, many years. And uh, the labor unions estimate something like one in 10 Oregon construction workers have worked worked on that first phase. It really kind of bailed out our construction industry during a time nobody was building homes or offices. Uh, so that, that sort of set a floor for us. And mm-hmm. then as our recovery has gone on, they built a second phase starting, I believe it's 2014. And then in January, they confirmed that they are in fact building this third phase. Each of them is the same size. They're going to be huge, and this will be where Intel develops each new generation of microprocessor for many, many years to come. So Hillsboro, which is you know home to several uh, Intel campuses, uh, will continue to be a, a you know a, a company town in many respects. Yeah, as long as people are are manufacturing. Uh, microprocessors, yeah. Hillsboro will be a nexus of that. So what about um, other uh, big big names or, or names that our readers might recognize uh, in the uh, Silicon Forest and Oregon Tech? Well, we, we had sort of a fallow couple years, maybe starting 2016, 2017. We had a actually kind of a tech boom coming out of the Great Recession as we shifted from our historical technology focus on hardware manufacturing mm-hmm. to software and and web services that boom kind of petered out around 2016 none of those companies got really large although they did have by many metrics some success they they didn't individually become large employers but they've kind of set the stage for continued growth maybe an echo boom we had some some of our big homegrown companies mentor graphics and fei for example sold to out of state or in mentor's case an out of the country company it was siemens mm-hmm. but it doesn't appear those sales have significantly reduced Oregon operations. Those companies, unlike when Tektronix sold, the FEI and Mentor's new owners have maintained the research facilities here. Yeah. Tektronix, the grandfather, I guess, right. of, of the uh, Oregon tech scene. Badly depleted since its sale in 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, but companies that have sold more recently have maintained their local presence under the new owners. And then we've had this... Just this year, sort of a succession of prominent fundings, a, a few companies, Sheer ID, uh, Big Leap Networks, and Realware, Realware's over in Vancouver, okay. have each landed big rounds. And Vacasa raised 300, that's in Portland, mm-hmm. uh, Vacation Rental Management. Yeah, raised, that's a name people might recognize. Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you run a vacation home, you're running across them now. Uh, they raised more, more than $300 million in October, and now they say they're worth more than a billion dollars. They could become the first big new Oregon-based company in, you know, a few decades. They have set the table for that. We'll see. They may sell. They may stumble. Um, they will face challenges, but you know, it's a sign that Oregon can still grow a big company, which we haven't done in a very, very long time. And that might mean em- employment growth. Employment growth. Uh, already, there have been one or two offshoots coming out of Vacasa, and that's what you'd like to have in an ecosystem. Is the way we had with Tektronix and Intel. We had a number of companies emerge from there in the seventies, eighties, and early nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, I know. That, oh, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but I know that there's been this kind of uh, existential question for a lot of different 
large parts of the city, whether it's the Central East Side or the North Pearl or South Waterfront, of trying to draw a big company in, right? And yeah. and I think from people like yourself and others who monitor the industry, it's that's unlikely. It's it's usually the growth comes from within, and it's interesting that we might have one of those companies. It's very rare for companies to move their headquarters. But sometimes they do grow small outposts into big ones. That's what happened to Intel. We still don't have their headquarters, but where their largest site, Hillsborough, is, it's very unusual for companies to, you know, suddenly grow a big new campus. Mm-hmm. Well, HP, which has been in Vancouver since the 70s, just announced they're going to build a new campus in Vancouver. It's about the same size as the one they have now, which is a real echo of what they used to have, a shadow of what they used to have. But... They set aside 1.5 million square feet, potentially. That would be a real corporate campus. It's hard to know what they're thinking. HP is facing business challenges and a hostile takeover bit from Xerox. But clearly, they're thinking there's a potential for long-term growth uh, in the Portland area, which was a big surprise to me. Yeah, and they still have an operation down in uh, outside of Corvallis. Right? Yes, it's, it's still one of their most important research sites. And they, they have a huge campus right there. It's, it's, it's a little difficult to tell what they're thinking, and they're not saying... I guess they're keeping their options open, and land in Vancouver is still relatively cheap, so maybe that's what they're thinking. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll keep an eye on that, a, a big uh, big name, HP. Um, so, Mike, how has our local economy uh, changed since the end of the last decade? I, I, I know it, it feels like a long time ago that, uh, that we had the recession, a, a decade ago, really. Um, uh, are we more prepared for the next recession? Yeah, I think we definitely are, and there's a few— few reasons. And one big one is the state coming out of the last recession established a rainy day fund. And so we put in a little bit of money, you know, each each uh, budget cycle for that rainy day fund. Well, because our expansion has gone on for so long, mm-hmm. we haven't had to tap that rainy f- day fund. And it's gotten very, very large. At the end of the next budget cycle, uh, the state economists say it'll have close to $2 billion in it, something like 10% of the entire general fund. So, one of the things that walloped us during the last recession is that government cut severely because government revenues were way down. So that meant fewer new jobs and people getting laid off in mm-hmm. some cases. Well, next time it happens, knock on wood, it won't be as bad as the Great Recession. If it's anything more mild than that, and not as long as the last one, we have the opportunity to potentially have stable government services during that time. That's a hopeful sign. The other thing that's a little more hopeful to me is that things like we were talking about a minute ago with Nike's expansion, Adidas' expansion, Intel's expansion, all these companies are investing in facilities. That's capital in the bank. Those things are there, and they'll continue to use them. So even a downturn, I think we're likely to have some more stability. I I wondered, and our state economists might, might say differently, if our economy would diversify more and we would have more different types of services, um, different types of manufacturing, different Mm -hmm. specialties, and more sort of anchor tenants, large companies here. And that's the sort of thing you might expect from a long expansion. I'm not sure it's happened. So a downturn that hit one sector, like, you know, microprocessors, like athletic footwear uh, or you know, things in that space might be felt still disproportionately here. But I, I do think it's unlikely to be as bad as last time. You know, it's always a question of, of when, not if. Uh, and at this point, it's been such a 
long uh, ride that uh, I guess that's, you know, we'll see what happens. I think it'll be a surprise to some people when it comes because it has been so long. Uh, and it'll, it'll be very unpleasant. And, of course, we won't quite see it coming because if we could, you know, you could do things to, to adapt. Exactly. Um, well, uh, let's take a break and then we'll talk about some of the biggest business stories of the year. Okay, Mike, sometimes it can be hard to remember all the stories that happened uh, on, on uh, the business beat uh, in a calendar year. Uh, refresh folks' memory. Um, what are some of the stories that will jump out to you? Probably the biggest business story of the year was the new corporate activities tax. It's a gross receipts tax that you remember Oregon voters considered a few years ago a much larger tax and overwhelmingly rejected it. Well, the legislature came back around with a more carefully crafted, much smaller tax. Works out to about a billion dollars a year. Hugely controversial in the legislature, Mm -hmm. but they kind of threaded a needle. They got Oregon business and industry, the state's business lobby, to sort of say, okay, you know, we'll sit on the sidelines. We got enough out of the structure that it's something we can live with. It's a big shock to Oregon businesses who have long enjoyed the nation's lowest or one of the nation's lowest tax burdens. And I think for certain industries, it will be painful. The concern with the tax, uh, it's a very low rate. It can be levied at each level of the supply chain. Mm -hmm. So if you're selling products through a a multi-level supply chain, those things could add up and might might really affect your costs. It's also structured, historically we've relied on a corporate income tax. States like Washington have a, a sales tax and a business revenue tax. This new tax is a tax on sales, not profits. So for low margin businesses, uh, it you know any additional tax reduces their margin. Right. So we'll see how businesses do with that. It's how much gets passed on to the consumer. There's a corresponding cut in personal income taxes to offset the consumer price impact of that. But it's a, it's a departure, and it's unlike taxes that exist in most of the country. So this next year is going to be really interesting as people adapt to that, and we see the effects. So I'd say that was the biggest story of the year. We had right. a, a series of scandals, um, many of which around Nike. You know, uh, employees there were uh, female employees spoke out. They were very active in being unhappy with how the company was treating women internally, both in terms of promotions and sexual harassment allegations. Mm -hmm. There's continued concern about, and our our colleagues Brad Schmidt and Jeff Manning have written a lot about this, about allegations that Nike has been paying high school hoopsters. Uh, Then there was a doping scandal late in the year with Alberto Salazar. Yeah, the the famed marathoner, the, uh, you know, Oregon legend who is really... uh, you know, it's got a building named after him on campus. He does, and they've just rededicated it this right. week. Uh, and he runs, he ran uh, the Oregon Project, their big running program. With Galen Rupp and uh, Mo Farah and, you know. It's been phenomenally like, successful, but there's yeah. been concern first around doping allegations and then next around treatment of female runners. And amidst all this, CEO Mark Parker announced that he's stepping down. So... Uh, it's been an eventful year for them. Uh, yeah, I can't recall, Mike, um, uh, and you've been around longer than I have. I was in uh, undergrad when, when um, you know, some of the treatment of the foreign plants and whatnot was a hot 
hot button issue of kind of the supply chain where Nike gets its stuff. But, um, you know, we're recording this the same week that, uh, you know, employees reportedly were protesting. I, that's not something I recall at Nike. No, and and it, that's been going on all year. Uh, and that's how the concerns about the treatment of women came to the fore. Nike employees stepped up and said, this is how we feel about that. Nike's also in the process of closing its campus daycare. Employees were very upset about that. There's been a lot of drama yeah. out in the out out on the campus. That said, sales are good. Right. Business is strong. Their new CEO comes from the technology space. There's a feeling, I think, that Nike is adapting to a new way of selling its products and a new way of incorporating its products, its te- technology into its products. I think there's a lot of hope uh, in that that company. Other big story, though, is is a death, right, in that same, you know, in the uh, apparel world. Oh, uh, yeah. Gert Boyle was at, at Columbia Sportswear. She took a company uh, when her husband died that was, you know, a middle player, but having some troubles and really set it on a powerful trajectory. And it's it's grown very large. And she she hasn't been CEO in many years, but she remained the company's chairwoman. And continue to be the face of the company, as well as a, a prominent figure in Oregon. And so her death, while not surprising, is a, is a real milestone for the company and the state. And, you know, even after her death, Columbia Sportswear is continuing to feature her in their ads. Yeah. She's a real symbol of Oregon and of that company. That tough, uh, one tough mother, right? The, yes. It's a, it's a phrase that sticks with you. Yes. We talked about Intel earlier. They chose a new CEO this year. It was somebody internal. It was their their chief financial officer, Bob Swan. They've continued to have manufacturing trouble. This, but their business has been stronger this year than they anticipated. I think things there, the Oregon's largest corporate employer, I think things there are still relatively strong. I've written a lot about drama in the the cannabis space this year. This was a really interesting saga to follow, Mike. Well, you know, it's we had this company, Cura Cannabis, that emerged and and it's Oregon's biggest marijuana company, the first big company to emerge since we we legalized marijuana. Mm -hmm. It was run by a fellow named Nittenkana who came out of the tech space. He left the tech space after rape allegations against him and started this marijuana company. They got involved in litigation after women began protesting the rape allegations. Mm -hmm. Then it became clear through our reporting, dating back to our colleague Jeff Manning's writing, that this company was got its initial funding through a real estate scam that cost dozens of Oregon retirees their retirement savings. Uh, In the midst of all that, uh, they agreed to sell the business to a big Boston company or near Boston company, which has a similar name, uh, Cura Leaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's backed by uh, a Russian billionaire and an American who made uh, a fortune privatizing Soviet industries. <laughs> we just can't escape Russia. Can no, there's been so many in and outs. And then they hired this Portland company, Cura, hired a new president who came from multi-level marketing, uh, essentially peddling protein powder a guy named Nick Sarnicola, and that caused more controversy. He left that company. He uh, gave you maybe the quote of the year, honestly. Yeah, well. he, he, I, I, I sent him a note and said, I hear you left. You know, what can you tell me? And he said, yes, I left because you're an idiot and have no life. And he's right on, on those latter counts. Uh, uh, but 
<laughs> I disagree. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's just brought more attention to the company's stumbles. In the course of all this, Curaleaf, which had agreed to pay a billion dollars for mm-hmm. it, said, no, actually, if we're going to go ahead with a deal, we're going to pay maybe one third of that amount. Uh, it's an all stock deal. It's all still remains in flux. It's not just Cura's stumbles that have caused this. It's that there's great uncertainty in the legal marijuana space generally. The vaping uh, health crisis this year badly depleted sales and and gave the whole industry a black eye. Now, it may be that that was primarily black market activity, but yet uh, the health issues were as severe in Oregon where THC is legal as anywhere else. Right, and so, uh, you know, discerning... um you know, vapors or people who consume marijuana through vaping pens, uh, I'm sure many of them said, maybe I'll hold off on on, on that for a little while. Well, and sales were, were way down. Uh, there's a great uncertainty around federal regulation around CBD, uh, which is non-THC uh, cannabis product that some people like for, for perceived health benefits. And then there's the question of federal legalization. It's you know, it's not clear how close that is. And as long as we have a, a patchwork of state-by-state mm-hmm. legalization, it's going to be a very complicated industry. And I think the Cura saga sort of embodies all that. We talked earlier, uh, Mike, about some of the big names here locally, um, you know, Nike, Intel, uh, Adidas, Columbia. Um, but but there is a big, a big uh, name coming in the um, in the hotel world, um, to an iconic, I guess as ter- as iconic as a parking lot can be, um, you know the the Alder Street food cart pod uh, in Portland, uh, Ritz Carlton is is a building that that was a big story this year. Yeah, our colleagues uh, Jeff Manning and Elliot News have written about that, and it you know is enormous project. What is it? Six hundred million dollars they're talking about for this for this luxury condo and hotel project in a part of town where you're not really sure that that's where people would want luxury condos. Right. It's not that the, the, you know, the part of town is particularly run down, but it's also not glitzy or anything. It's uh, not quite West End. It's not, you know, it's right off of Broadway, but it's right across from, you know, uh, O'Brien Square, which has been shuttered for more than a year. And, uh, you know, there's no immediate plans to develop it. It's a little bit, and no offense to, to businesses or people living right around there, it's a little bit dreary, frankly. And mm-hmm. maybe they think that this will be an anchor for it, but it's it's strange to see this enormous amount of debt associated with this deal. You know, we'll see what materializes. And if there's a market in Portland for super luxury condos and a super luxury hotel, uh, you know, right now, I believe the Nines has both the MLS and the NBA contracts. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're hoping that they'll get the NBA players to come through. Uh, well, that's forty-one nights a, a year, so maybe right. that, that'll help. <laughs> well, I guess we'll we'll see what happens there. Um, you you also, um, as part of your job, you keep uh, you know you you keep an eye on on big businesses closing. Um, can you talk about Norpac? Yeah, so that's down in the Willamette Valley, and it's a big food processing company, and it's it was a, a farmer's cooperative, and it's wiped out hundreds of jobs, and it appears that their issues are their own issues, that it's not necessarily symptomatic of larger issues with Oregon agriculture or Oregon food processing. But it is a setback, and it's a very large layoff. I mean, cumulatively, I think we're talking more than 1,000 people if, right. we're, if we're talking full-time and seasonal jobs. So... 
for food processors, for people working in that industry, there's going to be a period of adjustment down there as people figure out how these products get managed going forward. We'll see. We'll see what kind of adjustment we see out of that. But it, it's significant. We'd also be remiss, Mike, in not mentioning uh, Gordon Sondland, the uh, ambassador to the European Union, who uh, obviously a, a prominent hotelier here in town. It's, it's pretty unusual when you have a, a, a congressman um, boycotting a, a, a Portlander's business and, and uh, you know, also this guy who's on the national stage. That, that's something that I'll, um, I, that I'll remember from this year, certainly. You know, if you were in the Oregon hotel market, if you were in Oregon politics, you knew the name Gordon Sondland. He was a big political contributor um, to both sides of the aisle locally, although he's a staunch Republican and libertarian. Right. And, you know, big hotelier. He as our, our colleagues uh, Jeff Manning and Molly Young have, have chronicled, he was initially cool to Donald Trump, but then when the president won election, he became a major uh, contributor. And in, as his reward, he won this ambassador to the European Union. And somehow he found his way into the, the Ukraine affair and took center stage. And, now, and then out of all that, a series of sexual harassment allegations emerged yeah. against him from more than a decade ago yeah um, but, be, but you know from credible you know by all accounts credible credible accounts they're they're very specific uh they're uh, very well documented so this has been i won't say an obscure portland businessman because he was important within the local business community but he wasn't well known even in the state and now he's a very well known name nationally and that's an unusual thing to happen in oregon well, Mike, I think maybe we should wrap with um, with a discussion of, of a saga you followed through through the years. Um, kind of, you know, both exciting and then ultimately kind of sad. <laughs> the coolest cooler. <laughs> and this, what does that story tell us about crowdfunding? And can you remind folks about that? Yeah, well, in the same way that 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 Cura Cannabis is sort of emblematic of the issues in the recreational marijuana market, uh, in the CBD business, I think coolest cooler is maybe emblematic of some of the issues with with crowdfunding. You know, a, a decade ago or so, uh, crowdfunding became a popular way to fund an artistic project, and it, it was some, one of the th- great things that online communities can do mm-hmm. is you can bring people together online for something they would never find each other for before. So, you know, recording artists funded new albums that way, and then businesses started to do it too. And so we had this Portland entrepreneur, Ryan Grepper, who came up with the idea for a novelty cooler mm-hmm. that had a built-in blender, a Bluetooth speaker, a USB charger, you know, it could do all these wonderful things. And it was just at the dawn of crowdfunding. And, oh, people were just captivated by it. It was on Good Morning America. It was in USA Today. Right. Everybody seemed to be featuring it. And, you know, it raised $13 million, and you had 60,000 people contributing their 200 bucks or more uh, to get this project going. What wasn't clear to people, uh, they all contributed on a crowdfunding platform called Kickstarter. What mm-hmm. wasn't clear to many of those people at the time was Kickstarter at the time, and still to a degree today, looked like a retail website, but it's not. It was an idea to you know, give people money, and, and then if they succeed, they'll give you a reward, you know, the product that they're hoping to create. Right. Well, Grepper was a novice entrepreneur, and he was in way over his head. He didn't have a sense of how much it would cost to manufacture. To start this up initially, it was way more than the $200 he was charging. Uh, and he didn't have experience with the supply chain and manufacturing in China. It was a uh, it was a fiasco, really. 
Ultimately, he did deliver 40,000 coolers, but 20,000 others still don't have those. And then just this past week, he sent a note and said, oh, we're never going to be able to deliver those. Uh, So he blamed the trade war, but he's had every kind of problem uh, with it over the years. That's a bummer. Yeah, he reached a a settlement with the Oregon Department of Justice in 2017 that obliges him personally to pay out $20 of the $200 that these these 20,000 backers contributed. It's not clear to me, he's not responding to me, whether he has $400,000 to make those payments. I'm sorry, did he say $20? $20 of the $200 that people contributed. That's uh, You can buy a cheap blender for that, maybe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> if that. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, I, I think one of the lessons here is that crowdfunding is really good for some things and really not good for others. Mm-hmm. And for growing a large company, you know, a startup-type company that grows really fast, it may not be the best way to choose entrepreneurs who are prepared to do that or provide them the capital they need to do it. We'll see. This saga probably isn't over, but I think we can be pretty sure that those 20,000 people aren't getting their, their $200 coolers. Mike, is there anything um, in 2020 that you're, you know, business-wise that you're keeping an eye on? Oh, it's going to be the economy. You yeah. know, that's that's and, it. An election year. And it's an election year, uh, you know, how how things play out. Locally, but we, we don't have, for example, the corporate activity tax. Didn't There was an effort from some manufacturers to refer that to the ballot. It died at the starting line. There didn't appear, because the money's going to schools, there didn't appear to be a sentiment to overturn it. Yeah. And so I think the main thing is the economy and watching how that tax plays out. And uh, cap and trade down in Salem, too. Yeah, yeah, that will have potentially profound effects. That's an excellent point. Our colleague Ted Sickinger will be covering that closely. Uh, efforts at the... At, some sort of carbon tax or, or carbon threshold flamed out the last session when Republicans walked out. Yeah. Uh, you'd be curious if if there's some way to finesse that during the short session that begins in February. Well, uh, lots to keep track of and lots to, re- to recap. Um, thanks for taking the time and, and talking about it all. Th- thanks for having me, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. Check out Mike's stories on the business beat at OregonLive.com slash business. Check out my stories on the transportation beat at OregonLive.com slash commuting or follow me on Twitter at Andrew Thien. You can subscribe to Beat Check anywhere you get your podcasts to hear the latest episodes. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and review to help us spread the word. Until next time.